We're going to talk through Matthew 26. Uh, we are nearing the end. We have three weeks left. Uh, this week we'll talk about communion, uh, the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper, uh, or Eucharist, depending on your church tradition, if you have a church tradition. Next Sunday we're going to talk about the crucifixion, and, um, and then the following Sunday we'll talk about the resurrection and Jesus' command to go. And that will conclude our Matthew series that started in September of 2011. After that, we'll take a couple weeks to talk about uh, learning to live with enough, uh, contentment and enough kind of living. And then we'll do Advent for Christmas. So how many of you grew up with an Advent tradition at Christmas? Um, I was Methodist, so I did, but unfortunately, it's been about 21 years, and I've had to go back and kind of research um, the Advent calendar and the rituals associated with Advent. But we'll take a look at that, and then at the first of the year... We will start our next Bible book. Uh, we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians. Um, Corinth was a city equivalent to that of like modern-day Las Vegas. And those people um, became followers of Jesus and had all kinds of issues uh, because of their sinful habits in life, just like we have all kinds of issues because of our sinfulness in life. And, um, and so I think it's going to be relevant, and, um, and I look forward to that. So... Matthew 26, um, when we, we are, we are basically, so every Sunday here at Polaris, and, and in, if you have a church tradition, chances are you are familiar with communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, uh, the idea of, of taking uh, juice and bread or wine and bread and remembering Jesus, and it all starts from Matthew 26. What we have to talk about today is pretty heady stuff, which I want everybody here, and some of this might be total review for you guys. Uh, but, but I want everybody to leave with a basic understanding of, of the Lord's Supper or communion. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to, if you, if you leave with nothing else, I want to really focus in on the fact that this is a meal. Um, and, and, and Jesus instituted it during a meal. It wasn't like he just handed out bread and juice and said, do this. It was a meal they were t- sharing together. <coughs> And when the New Testament Christians celebrated this, it was a meal. Um, Now, we have reduced it, modern-day Christians, to a little shot glass of juice or wine and in a little chiclet, you know, a little little piece of of bread. And it's really, really quick. And it's just one of those things where logistics, because of logistics, it's just what it's become. And it's easy to focus on Jesus but lose sight of the meal aspect. And the reason I think the meal is so important is because it's so intimate. Um, Jesus could have picked anything. He could have said, kneel on this broomstick for 10 minutes and think about me. And, and you would remember Jesus if you were kneeling on a broomstick. But um, he chose a meal, and, and, and it just... When I, when I was growing up, my, my mom has an Amish heritage, and so she's a really good cook and would you know famous for whipping together... Five-course meals, um, you didn't have much less than a five-course meal any given night. Um, and it wasn't just for the food. You made it home to dinner because you had to. I mean, at 5, 36 o'clock, we were all sitting at the dinner table because we had to. Um, and even my friends loved to come and eat at our dinner table uh, who didn't have that kind of value because it was just family time. We're not talking about the, you know, the formal dining room. We're talking about the kitchen table dinner time. And, and I just, 
when we, when we think about God and, 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 and what we've turned into a little bit of a ritual, and rituals are good, but it's important to remember that it's the intimacy there that he's going for. God wants a meal with us. He wants that kitchen table. Move that down a little bit. By the way, if any of you see the wire that goes on the back of my head for that thing, I, we've lost it, and if you're walking around and step on it, but um, remember, r- remember that when we, when we look at this heady knowledge is that at the core of us, strip everything away, kitchen table, intimacy with God and with each other. That's what he's looking for. Matthew 26. If you have a green Bible, and I would love for you to follow along. Uh, if you have a green Bible, we're going to start on page uh, 695. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. So um, Jesus is in Jerusalem about halfway through the week. Uh, his, his ministry from a worldly perspective is falling apart in that he's getting all this pressure from Jewish leaders who want him dead. They want him dead because he's challenging the current religious establishment. Everybody's having all sorts of doubts now about the way life is being um, basically distributed by the religious leaders. Um, And Jesus is telling him, you have it all wrong. You're dead wrong in the way you approach God. Uh, They're getting nervous. They're getting jealous. They're getting frustrated. They want Jesus dead. Down to 14. Then one of the 12 disciples, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Judas, one of the 12, is going to betray Jesus. There's this deal sealed by 30 silver coins um, in place, all behind the scenes. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12 disciples. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, this is verse 20, one of you will betray me. Uh, Down in 25, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. So, in a climate of things starting to crumble now toward Jesus' death, it's very important for Matthew that we all as his readers know that Jesus was well aware of what was going on. So back in, I think it was chapter 16, he's in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. He's up at the very northern part, up by Lebanon of Israel. And it says, after that encounter, he set his face to Jerusalem and began to tell his disciples, the Son of Man must be crucified in Jerusalem. Um, He goes down, days, weeks, months, however long, to southern Israel into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, announcing... In two days, I'm going to be crucified. He also says at the dinner table, I know that Judas is the one who's going to be... So while from the outside it may look by people are are, are, um, um, getting the upper hand on Jesus, what Jesus makes very clear is that he knows it's coming. 
He's well aware. He is submitting to what's about to happen to him, and it's important to Matthew that we all realize that Jesus knows exactly what's going on. Okay. So it's clear in 26, 26, 1 and 2, that they're going to celebrate the Passover meal. And then in verse 26 it says, um, and, and actually verse 17, they're talking about making preparations for this meal. By verse 26 it's clear that this moment where Jesus is about to institute what we know as communion is happening in the context of the Passover meal. So when we sit and we celebrate communion on Sundays, what we're celebrating is a remnant of the Passover meal. So it's important that we all have a basic understanding of what the Passover meal really was and what it represented. So if you'll turn with me to Exodus 12, we're going to go back in time 1,500 years at least before Jesus was sitting with his disciples. <coughs> this is the point of time when the Passover meal became a regular yearly ritual for the Jews. So for 1,500 years, they celebrated the Passover up until this moment when Jesus sits with his disciples. 1,500 years ago, this is where it all started. Chapter 12, verse 1, it's on page 46 of the Green Bibles. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, so the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and there's nothing they can do to get out of slavery. That's their lot in life. They can't get themselves out. God has chosen to intervene. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. So the first thing God says is you're going to set this month as your new calendar. This is where life starts for you. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. So God is about to redeem them from Egypt. He's about to remove them from slavery, deliver them from slavery, and he's telling them, this is your new first month of the year. You're going to reset around this moment when I have delivered you. And the first thing they need to do is on the 10th day of that month, bring in a spotless lamb from outside into their house, which is kind of strange, but they're supposed to bring it into their house. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one uh, with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. Bring them in on the 10th day of the month. Take care of them in the house for four days. Um... Day of the month, when all the members, um, when all the members on the fourteenth day of the month of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Now you break down the Hebrew term for twilight. What it's really meaning is three p.m. So right around the, that time frame, three p.m., as close as they could get to, to that without alarm clocks, is when you're slaughtering this lamb that's been in your house for how many days? Four days. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, 
They are to eat the, land, the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs, uh, bread made without yeast. Uh, then down uh, till, to verse 10, don't leave anything until morning. If something's left, you must burn it. Eat with a cloak and belt, sandals on your feet like you're ready to go. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, people and animals. Bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign. The blood will be a sign for you on your houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So, here's the setting. God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And all these plagues are happening, and Pharaoh is not responding to the plagues. The plagues are intended to free the Israelites from slavery. But God has hardened their hearts so in, in order to get to the most horrible plague imaginable, the death of firstborn children. So toddlers, newborns, babies, little boys, little girls... Um, those of you who are parents or grandparents, you know how near and dear. And there's going to be this night when all the firstborn children die. Uh, maybe the most horrible um, occurrence in human history in terms of just calamity of, uh, I mean, just horrible. Um, I, I can't imagine the equivalent. I can't imagine uh, that kind of death sentence. But God is creating um, a, a horrible situation so that the Israelites can know what it is to be freed. And what God does is He tells the Israelites, a lamb can take the place. Essentially, something has to die. And you get to pick because you can choose a lamb instead of your children. And so they bring in this lamb, they take care of it. On the 14th day, they slaughter it, and they put the blood on the door frames, and they begin an understanding that started back then that we are saved and delivered by the shedding of blood. And they continue that ritual. 10th day, lamb comes in. 14th day, lamb slaughtered, blood covered. And they do that every single year. Um, and then Jesus comes along, and on the day he enters Jerusalem for his final time, that's that tenth day, when everyone else is bringing a lamb into their house. And on the day that he is slaughtered on the cross, that's the day and the time that for 1,500 years the Israelites have been performing that ritual that ultimately led to that moment. It's the fulfillment of that. So, so the Passover meal is something that the Israelites did every single year. Every element had a symbolic meaning. And it ultimately was getting them ready for Jesus' blood that would be shed for them. Um, and Jesus takes this meal and he changes a couple of the elements. So let's read uh, what happens here back in Matthew 26. Uh, verse 26, while they were eating, 
Jesus took bread. Now, every Jew that's reading this is thinking about the bread associated with the Passover meal and the different things that that bread stands for. But Jesus gives it a new meaning. It says, When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. So there were different moments for bread. And he picks one and he breaks the bread and he says, Now this is, this is referring to me. Which had to be strange for the disciples because his body hadn't been broken yet in the sense that um, he hadn't submitted it to the cross. It hadn't gone under any kind of physical harm. But he says, this body is going to be broken for you. I want you to remember that. And then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, uh, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant. So, if we're going to take a part in this ritual, we need to understand covenant. We need to know what covenant really means. And covenant is a promise. It's a promise between God and people. And there's an old covenant before this new covenant. So if you turn to Exodus 19.5. So on page 52 of the Green Bible... Um, this was shortly before God had, had just delivered the Israelites from slavery. And, um, and before he gave them their laws and rules, he says this. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God makes a promise with them. If you follow the rules, you will be a special people for me. That's the old covenant. The problem is it was based on human beings following rules, which we don't do real well. So, by Jeremiah, turn to Jeremiah with me. Um... It's on page 548. This is hundreds of years before the time of Jesus. The Israelites had ruined the covenant with God by worshiping all sorts of gods and doing all sorts of things. And Jeremiah says this, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors to say to one another, Know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So what we see is God saying through the prophet Jeremiah, well before the time of Jesus, there was an old covenant and it didn't work out. There will be a new covenant and it will be a promise of forgiveness, of blanket forgiveness. And it will be a faith of the heart. It will be a relationship of the heart. And the Israelites were waiting for this promise to come. And on this night in Matthew 26, Jesus is saying this promise is being fulfilled. This is the cup of the promise. And when you take this cup, you remember 
that my blood was shed for this covenant. It's a covenant of blood. So to understand the covenant of blood, we need to, we need to learn a new party word here at Polaris. Substitutionary atonement. So when you're at your next dinner party, you can wow your guests by talking through substitutionary atonement. Um, to understand this, uh, we, need to, we need to think back to the Passover language where the Israelites were shown that something can take your place. There's a death penalty coming. Uh, you can pay it, or there can be a substitution. So in Isaiah 53, if you get a chance to read that this week, Isaiah 53 is an incredible chapter that lays out a Messiah years before Jesus, you know, centuries before Jesus, but Isaiah 53 says there will be a Messiah, and he will be a Passover lamb. He will be killed for our sins. He will pay the price. He will pay our death penalty. If you look into the book of Leviticus, you remember the sacrificial system where after, after committing sins, you would have to go to the priest and get um, an animal. You put your hand on the head of the animal, and it would be slaughtered so you could see death is the payment for sins. And you were atoned for. That's the concept of substitutionary atonement. It's the difference between Christianity and the other major world religions. Because the other world religions, the major world religions, say that you earn your standing with God. If you do this, then God will be pleased. Or some, if you do this, maybe God will be pleased. But the difference that Jesus makes is that he paid the blood sacrifice for us. So we stand before God guilty, but the punishment has already been paid. And it says in, in Jeremiah 31, and I will remember their sins no more. So God doesn't keep an account any longer of our sins in our relational standing with him. We're good with God because our sins have been substituted for by Jesus. And so when we sit together and we take communion and we drink that cup, we're to, we're to remember that it is a blood covenant. And if you're like me, I need that weekly reminder, this is not about me. God loved me and he paid the price and this is about grace. This is a grace and mercy thing that we're in, not an earning thing that we're in. All right, I want to move on and go to Acts chapter 2. And take a look at how the early church implemented this. <coughs> Chapter 2, on page 759, verse 42. Now, uh, Jesus has died, risen, ascended. The church is beginning. So those 12 men, 11 of them now, have begun the church work. And here's how they celebrated what Jesus began in Matthew 26, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to breaking bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to those who had in need. Uh, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, that, those, those, the, twice you saw breaking bread. 
And virtually every scholar, as well as church history, confirms that what they're referring to there is communion or the Lord's Supper. They celebrated the Lord's Supper together almost daily. All the time they got together and they broke bread. And now they did it in the context of these meals that they called love feasts, which sounds kind of weird. But they called it the love feast and everybody would get together and they would bring their food and they would eat together. And during those meals, they would break bread and drink wine or juice and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. Um, It's one of the reasons that we take communion every Sunday at Polaris. We don't want to get legalistic with it, um, but it seems like it was a regular part of the early church when they gathered together. Now, we don't take it at our church picnic, so, I mean, it's not every time we get together. Uh, We're just trying to do as much as we can to get close with the way they celebrated that in the early church. Um, Nothing says you have to take it every week in Scripture. It's just there to be celebrated if you choose. Um, So you get that meal kind of intimacy, and that's how the early church celebrated this. One more passage, and that's 1 Corinthians, and we're going to see through a warning, a very staunch warning, um, the spirit with which God desires communion to be taken and how it was taken in the early church. So, Corinth, Las Vegas, Sin City. Um, it, it actually had its own, it, was, it had its own regional reputation. I mean, it was, it was a city of sin. And there are, there are Christians now developing And so a lot of the things that Jewish Christians just got intuitively because they were raised in a a moral, on a morality-based system, Corinth didn't have that. So Paul has to sort it all out for them. Verse 17, chapter 11, page 799. In the following directives, I have no praise for you for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead um, with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or or, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup, this is the new covenant of my blood. Do this wherever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever drinks, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty, will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now understand that it is not likely that Paul is talking about a spiritual thing there. That you're weak spiritually, or you're sick spiritually, or you've fallen asleep spiritually. He's most likely saying you're physically sick, you're physically weak, and some of you have died. Flatline, died, because you have not taken communion in a worthy manner. And now we have to decide what we're going to do with that. Um, does God mean what he says? Is the word of God true and to be taken literally? Um, and I believe that it is. I'll, I'm the first one to stand up here and say, I believe that scripture is to be taken literally. Does that still apply today? I don't know. Nothing says that it ever stopped applying, that when we take communion in an unworthy manner, we endanger our lives. That makes it pretty serious. So let's talk through Corinthians 11 and, um, and, and, and paint a picture of what's happening here. So, so it was not uncommon for the whole potluck social thing to happen in, in the Corinthian culture, even outside of the church, for just secular people to get together and eat. But... They got together to eat according to social classes, much like we do today. We're not above that. I mean, it looked like the, the lunchrooms of school with the cool kids and the nerds and, you know, the rich and the poor, and you know, everybody separates according to social systems and colors and things like that. And, and what was happening was they were having these gatherings but the rich people who didn't have to um, didn't have to work would come and bring their food together, and the people with less resources and the poor who had to work longer hours, by the time they showed up, the food was gone, or they had their own place they had to eat. That's why Paul says some of you are already drunk by the time some of you get there and there's no food left to eat. And instead of being, uh, we're all in this together, we're all at the table together, everybody eats at the popular kid's table in the kingdom of God. It was exploiting the poor and the worse off, the margins of society. And this so infuriated Paul because it misses the whole point of the Lord's table. That's why he says, this isn't the Lord's supper you're eating. There's, it's just a dinner. Um, and it just it goes to show that when God created the, the ritual or the moment of communion, he really did have that family dinner table in mind where we're all together, sharing together, remembering that none of us deserve to be here in the first place. It's all about Jesus and what he's doing in us. So, application. Uh, when, when we're here, even though it's just a moment, it's important that we take that moment. You remember, there, there's a... Let me go back one more real quick here. Um, there's a moment when Paul says... talks about discerning the body of Christ. It's in 29... For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. The body of Christ there, when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's referring to the church. He's referring to all of us together. And what he seems to be saying is, 
when you are not aware of your brothers and sisters, um, you're not properly discerning the moment, and you're in danger. So this, this is our family time when we have this communion moment. 